this episode of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers, or at least I am, talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And this is an unusual episode because we're not doing a news roundup. We're just doing a deep dive on a single book called Cyber Persistence Theory, Redefining National Security in Cyberspace. It was written by three people, and we're going to be talking to one of them. Michael Fisher-Keller, whom we're going to be interviewing, is a, a longtime IDA, Institute for Defense Analyses researcher, who's been supporting the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs for many years. His co-authors are Emily Goldman, who has been a cyber strategist at Cyber Command for many years and a teacher, and Richard Harknett, who's a political science professor at the University of Cincinnati, co-director of the Ohio Cyber Reign. And they've written a book that I would say is an effort to talk about cyber strategy that is tempered by reality in a way that, to my mind, a lot of pontificating on this stuff is not. And in the interest of getting a conversation going, I'm going to be joined by Dave Itell, who is familiar to the listeners to the podcast. Dave is the head of the Itell Foundation. He is somebody who does cyber research and red teaming, has for his entire career, and has produced a book report about the book that's on YouTube. So if you enjoy this, you should go look up Dave Itell's cyber book review for YouTube. So that's the introduction. Michael, I promised you that I would ask you this question so that you'd have at least a minute without being interrupted. What is the elevator pitch for this book? What were you trying to, you and your co-authors, trying to convey in this book? Stuart, thank you. Delighted to be here. And Dave, thank you for taking the time to participate in this. I'm sure this will be a fun dialogue. Quite simply, but significantly, we argue in this book that cyberspace is not merely a domain, that it is instead a strategic environment that sits alongside and also interacts with two other strategic environments, the nuclear and the conventional environment. Strategic environments are a term that we introduce here. They act as an intervening variable that informs states decision-making. They're distinguishable by their core characteristics and the security concerns and logics that are derived from those characteristics. The cyber strategic environment specifically includes the characteristics of interconnectedness, constant contact, macro resilience coupled with micro vulnerability, and mutability. We argue that the strategic concern that derives from these characteristics is that one's sources of national power and one's national instruments power are accessible to an opponent in and through cyberspace. So I'll offer an example of each of those. Sources of national power include intellectual property and financial assets, and we all know that those have been under assault from U.S. opponents. And instruments of national power include the military, diplomatic, and economic instruments. And we know that states have been successful at reducing U.S. military overmatch through cyber-enabled activities as well as skirting economic sanctions through cyber-enabled activities. The security logic that flows from this concern is that actors must persist in seizing and maintaining the initiative to set the conditions of security in and through cyberspace by exploiting adversary cyber vulnerabilities and reducing the potential for exploitation of one's own. I know that's a mouthful, but it is a core point that we make in the book that this is, in fact, a strategic imperative. It is not a choice. Uh, we argue that a whole-of-nation-plus strategic approach that's grounded in a strategic concept of initiative persistence is the proper approach to achieving security in and through cyberspace. And throughout the book, we consider the policy implications of this argument, uh, many of which um, I suspect that we're going to go over today. Yeah. So I, one of the things that I think what you didn't say, but which I think I saw in the book at many places, is a lot of this book is about telling other people they're wrong, that they've misunderstood cyber conflict, and that this has led to people wringing their hands over the possibility of escalation, worrying, trying to find a deterrent strategy so that they can dust off all their own nuclear strategy books. Can you tell us what you think people get wrong in this area? 
Yeah, and I mean, as an academic, I'm not going to say that somebody is wrong. I'm going to suggest that we have a we have an explanation uh, or a theory that it has greater explanatory power, and that's what you want in academia, right? Your theory has to be better than the theories that you're claiming it trumps. So I think a fundamental point that we make is that the dominant behavior in cyberspace is exploitation. And most of the other theorists and plenty of policymakers out there think that coercion is the basis of state activity in and through cyberspace. And in fact, there's very little and almost none, no coercion. And because people have this notion that coercion is the primary behavior, they default to a strategy of security of deterrence because deterrence is fundamentally based on coercion. And so most of the scholarship out there and most of the strategies until recently have been premised on deterrence. In fact, they've equated deterrence with security. We can understand why that's the case. Right? Deterrence has been the central strategy in the United States for 70 years. And so when the cyber strategic environment emerged and policymakers had to think about what should be our security approach to this, they went to the default. Right? I mean, this is what we do. This is how our brains work. Right. But we're arguing that, in fact, this is not consistent with how states behave in cyberspace, that the security environment of cyberspace is different than the nuclear and conventional environments where deterrence and coercion are dominant. And, and therefore, we need to rethink what the appropriate security logic is and what the consequences of that for policy choices. So what do you when you say exploitation, what do you mean there? It sounds mostly like cyber espionage. Well, I'm glad you raised that point because this is one of the hurdles that we have to clear. Generally, when the term is used, exploitation, when talking about cyberspace, people default to espionage because that's how it's used in the intelligence. And that's, in essence, the home of the term. But we argue that the lexicon of cybersecurity, let's say in the private sector, exploitation means something different. Right? It means taking advantage of a vulnerability or writing a code is an exploit. Right? And exploitation is the initial act for any cyber activity that follows. You have to exploit a vulnerability first. Now, it may be for the purpose of intelligence. It may be for the purpose of degrading military overmatch. It may be for the purpose of intellectual theft. We do not want to default exploitation with just for the purpose of intelligence. Because states exploit in and through cyberspace for various reasons to satisfy whatever the national interests are. So let me bring Dave in. Dave, Michael doesn't want to say that he's called anybody out exactly, but I'll let you, <laughs> you've read these guys. Do you think this is a disrespecting of a whole set of, a whole school of thought on cyber? I want to say that I think there's a very clear schism right now in cyber policy. And in my perspective, as an outside reader and enjoyer of the many forms of snark that can be portrayed in these books, this is sort of one huge pillar of one of the sides. And the other side, which I don't usually find myself on, would be the coercion deterrence side. So that I, I think that much is true. And to the aspect that like a lot of current writers and thinkers at all levels of government and policy and academia have hung their hat on deterrence and coercion, like, you are saying they are wrong, right? In some sense, they are not as good. They are bad, right? Like, in, in terms of where they that lack policy, like, They lack explanatory power. They lack explanatory <laughs> power, right? So I think that's... It's not wrong to say that there's conflict. I think there's some things in this book that were really quite stark in terms of differences of thinking, and which was good because we needed to take that step forward to explain them. Like, because... Before this book, there were a lot of papers, and you would have to sort of put those papers together to try to understand the thrust and the meaning of this stuff. And I think a lot of people were confused and still are confused because it's complicated. But the things that stuck out at me, and I don't mean to quote your book at you, but one of the things you said was that the nature of cyberspace requires a redefinition of security itself. And the other thing that you said in the, in the beginning of the book that I thought was really interesting was – the terms offense and defense are analytically too limiting and not explanatorily helpful, which explains a lot if you think about it, because what you see in the literature is a lot of people talking about, like, should we have a defense-focused cyber policy, for example? You'll see a lot of papers like that. I think the thing that I would have loved to have had in the beginning of the book would be a, a chart or, like, visual, and I've 
I mentioned this before, but I found it like I think a lot of people are confused about the difference between initiative persistence, between defend forward, between a lot of like a lot of the big ticket things. They don't know how they connect and interlink, right? So I think that's some of the stuff. And I would love to ask you right now, like how do you feel these big concepts interlink? Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. And I know your love of charts. And in some new work that we're doing now, I assure you that in chapter one, there's going to be a chart. So we have to be careful to separate out the terms associated with the theory and the terms associated with what Cybercom is doing, the strategic approach of persistent engagement. This is not a book about persistent engagement. This is a book about cyber persistence theory that happens to align with what the Department of Defense is doing in the United States in cyberspace, right? Which is a good thing, frankly, right? We have to be, there, there are two times in history where strategies did not align with the strategic environment. One was World War One, and one was France in World War Two, and both of those had disastrous outcomes, right? So we're fortunate that we actually have some theory-based international relations work that suggests here is an approach and that approach is based on initiative persistence, seizing the initiative and having to do so continuously. That's why we call it initiative persistence, because the environment is mutable. And then what Cybercom did in their strategic vision, because they saw the same thing by operating in cyberspace, right? So we took the theory, top-down approach. They, in essence, took the inductive approach. They were saying, yeah, this is actually what we're seeing. We are seeing the need for persistence General Nakasone, in particular, when he was interviewed after Operation Glowing Symphony, talks exactly about that, right? That we had to stay at it, stay at it, stay at it. So that's- What that's, was Glowing Sympathy, is Symphony? Sorry. Glowing Symphony was Cybercom. It's often heralded as Cybercom's really first significant operation in, in against Al-Qaeda. Okay. It was in 2016, where we, in the first stage, there's a good NPR interview about this, where the United States tackled the, essentially the recruiting infrastructure and the financial infrastructure of Al-Qaeda, which was the beginning of a longer two-year campaign, where they combined that with kinetic effects to essentially significantly reduce the presence of Al-Qaeda in the Middle East. But these other terms, Dave, to your point, so the persistent engagement is the name of the operationalization of Cybercom's strategic approach. Defend Forward is one of the three pillars of persistent engagement, but it can get confusing. The other two are anticipatory resilience and the third is contest. But it gets confusing because the DOD 2018 strategy, even though it really has no name officially, is often called the Defend Forward strategy. Right. But you, if you look through that document, you won't see the word defend forward at all. What they were doing is leaning on one of the pillars of persistent engagement, recognizing that that was consistent with what they were arguing in their four page summary in 2018. And so then it, it took on the informal name of the defend forward strategy. Yeah, let me push you on that, because I, I think looking at the history of Cyber Command, they had this problem that everybody expected them to do something in cyberspace that would make us safer. And nobody knew exactly what that was, but we were supposed to have the best tools and the best offense. And yet, as General Nakasone said when he was talking about the attacks on us, he said, they don't fear us. So the longer that went on, the more the pressure built for Cyber Command to use all these, these shiny new weapons and capabilities and all the money that was being spent to, by God, do something. And so faced with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they launched what I would describe as a pretty good kind of DDoS and infiltration campaign against them that made it much harder for them to get online and mock the U.S. and display beheading videos. And that, that strikes me as you know, kind of a nice thing to have done. I doubt it was strategic in its impact. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I'll go directly to your last comment that you're not sure it was strategic in its impact. So there's a really good piece by Major General Dubik on what is what are decisive, what does decisive mean in operations? And decisive can be, in, in essence, he's also talking about does it have strategic impact? Decisive can be a couple of things. Decisive doesn't have to be that a capability independently is decisive, right? right. And, and independently leads to a strategic outcome. Decisive can also be that it sets the conditions 
sets the conditions for other capabilities to, to generate that strategic outcome. So I would counter your argument, this is some new work that we're doing, frankly, by saying that what that operation did, though Operation Glowing Sympathy, was to set the conditions for the, su- the success of our kinetic capabilities. And if you look at the two-year period after we did OGS, Operation Glowing Sympathy, you will see that the kinetic effort from the United States and its allies increased significantly and the influence of, of ISIS degraded significantly in that two-year okay. period. So I would suggest it set the conditions of success. And I want to repeat that because, because we think that that is the primary strategic utility of cyber operations. It is setting the conditions for success in competition, in crises, and in armed conflict. Okay. Now do China, Russia, North Korea. They've all gotten rich strategically using cyber. Your approach in the book says we have to be engaged. We're not going to stop them. We're not going to deter them. That certainly seems to be clear. And so we have to engage with them. We have to have campaigns. We have to seize the initiative. What does that mean in practice with those adversaries and the kinds of things that they have done from you know, wrecking the 2016 campaign, at least for Hillary Clinton and ultimately Trump's presidency, or stealing the plans for the F-35 and everything else that we have developed as weapons, or totally blowing off sanctions and getting rich on cybercrime, which North Korea has done. Yeah, so great question. And Dave and I actually had an email exchange about China in intellectual property about a year or so ago. So, let me repeat a point that I made earlier, that the book, the separating the book from what Cybercom is doing, right? the book says that you need a whole of nation plus approach premised on initiative persistence. So in DOD and at Cybercom, initiative persistence is operationalized as persistent engagement, right? So mm-hmm. DOD and Cybercom needs to keep doing what it's doing. Right. And Cybercom, going back to the election, Cybercom, it has been publicly reported, degraded the capability of the IRA to influence the elections. They also degraded TrickBot just before the vote of the midterms. So Cybercom is doing some things from an election interference perspective. The National Security Agency, let's just consider them separate right now is now focused on doing hunt operations on the defense industrial base because of the concern of China stealing intellectual property from the DIB. So now NSA is involved with that. The FBI, notice I'm walking now across different agencies and different departments because initiative persistence, again, has to be whole of government, whole of nation plus. The FBI more recently has been leveraging Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure to take the hafnium web shell off of computers without first informing the users. So let, let me stop you there because there's a theme there. And the yeah. theme is that when we say persistent engagement, we mean we're going to be engaged in other people's computers if we have to, and certainly around the world, trying to get in their way. It's sort of like being a defensive back. You're just out there trying to screw things up. And that's a big part of the job, but it means you're in everybody's computers, which has domestic political implications, and international implications. Well, it it doesn't mean you're in everybody's computers, right? And sometimes, frankly, Cybercom, and again, it's not just Cybercom, right? We have to think of the whole government, whole nation. Cybercom gets in, you know, by host nations for its on-forward operations. They get invited, right? So the governments allow them on their systems to identify and seek out and identify malware. And Ukraine's a really good example of how this is valuable, right? When when Cybercom's teams discovered some malware, they routinely, not just in U- Ukraine, but through hunt forward operations, they routinely share that information back to CISA, back to the FBI, back to in other interagency fora, post it on the virus total. And so that allows industry, private sector to actually inoculate themselves from any potential adversary attack. So we don't have to be on those systems to help secure those systems, right? Okay. Uh, Well, the Rule 41 was certainly in everybody's computer. (laughs) Well, no, I I agree. Rule 41 is, is a really assertive interpretation. Right, of Rule 41, what the FBI is doing. But, and you referred to it as engagement. So I refer to Rule 41 and the FBI's interpretation of that as initiative persistence. 
Okay. As an example of initiative persistence, that we knew that Cyclops Blink, for example, was on all of this hardware. We knew that the Russians were behind it, and therefore we had a pretty strong inkling that it was going to be used for malicious purposes. And so, therefore, we then acted, right? We took the initiative to take that malware off of those systems. That's initiative persistence. You're always jockeying for advantage in this space. And so, you have to be persistent and you have to constantly be pursuing the initiative because your opponents always are. So, let me ask about the Iranian DDoS attacks on American banks. Also, an engagement and a fait accompli because we never were able to stop them. And it turned out, of course, they were DDoSing those banks from 50 other countries, computers in 50 other countries. And the logical thing, the obvious thing would have been to do a military equivalent of Rule 41 and find those compromised machines and infiltrate them and tell them to start taking their orders from a computer in Fort Meade. But there was a sovereignty objection to our doing anything on a computer in anybody's territory, other territory. And we weren't going to get invited into 50 countries to do that. So what's the cyber persistence approach to that kind of problem? Do you just say, oh, well, sorry, international law? Or is there a ballsier view of international law that will allow us to go in? <laughs> Great question. So I, we have to remember that I think the Iranian attacks were, I think, in 2012 or thereabouts, right? And, yeah, and, a long and, time ago. Right, right. And that's when the U.S. cyber strategy was a strategy of deterrence. Our reaction to that was we'll threaten to use cyber or we'll use some other instrument of national power to try to get the Iranians to stop, right? And it didn't work. So but in 2018, and then the FY19 NDAA, some legislation was passed and some presidential activity led to NSPM 13 and viewing cyber operations as a traditional military activity rather than covert operations. These essentially opened the door for a more forward-leaning, assertive use of cyber capabilities by the United States. The United States right. has or, not or if I can if I can reinterpret if I could just reinterpret that briefly, it means that Cyber Command could decide to do this on its own with DOD overseeing it, and they didn't have to come ask a bunch of weenies in the Obama administration whether it was okay with the State Department if they went after people in on computers in other countries. Yeah, I don't know. I'm if not going to ask you to confirm or deny that. <laughs> yeah, I know, and, and I'm not going to do either. I, what I would, do, what I would do is suggest you look at the statements of uh, Ambassador Bolton and others who describe what the consequence of NSPM 13 was, rather than looking. I, I'm at pretty. I'm pretty sure Weenies was in his statement. Yeah, too. <laughs> it probably. It may not, but you know, I, I, I think just. If we step back and think broadly how any military operation works, right, there is an interagency gathering and the interagency gathering, they work it out. How does state feel about this? How does DOD feel about it? How does commerce? How does DHS? And then you proceed. Cybercom as, a, as an operational combatant command has to go through those same processes. Right? And, and NS, NSP doesn't take that away. Right? I don't want to lose, though, what Stuart originally was sort of looking at here, which is you do have a section in the book about international law. Yeah. And I think you quite clearly drive a statement that says something, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me. One of the reasons international law has performed so poorly in cyber is that it is largely based on coercive theory. Am I, hopefully I'm quoting you and you're not complaining, but you, there's also the ability using the theory to make predictive effects as opposed to simply explaining what we see Cybercom do, you can almost make a predictive effect of where sort of international law would have to go in order to cover cyber, but also what states are going to do in cyber in response to other actions. Is that, am I getting the theme correctly here? I hope I am. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct, Dave. I mean, we, we do say that, and I've written a separate piece about this. If you look in the UN Charter, the objective of the UN Charter was to end war in essence, right? End armed conflict. And it was born of an intense period of armed conflict. And so all of the, the rules in the charter, Article 2.4, is about use of force, 
Article 51 is about armed. The rule of non-intervention, which is customary international law, has, says that there has to be an element of coercion in addition to interference into the domain reservé of, of a particular state. So there is this underlying coercive theme in international law, which is why, in my view, it struggles to be relevant. And to something that we said offline, Dave, earlier, that's why remarks on the need to rethink coercion to make international law relevant for cyberspace, remarks by the recent UK Attorney General, are really important and need to be heard. In regard to sovereignty, Stuart, to get back to your point, the big debate about sovereignty, is it a rule or is it a principle, basically an organizing principle for states, you know, post-Westphalia? And some states say it's a rule and some states think it's a principle. But even the states who say it's a rule don't say that if you violate it, you definitely violated international law. Because, of course, we understand that espionage would violate the rule all the time, right? But all states engage in espionage. So it's just saying that sovereignty is a rule doesn't mean that any cyber operation that violates sovereignty necessarily violates international law. So is the debate about sovereignty, the sovereignty over computer assets inside my territory if I'm a nation. Is the debate over the international law rule versus principle code for, are we going to say the United States has violated international law if they go in and knock out DDoS machines in France? I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's code for that. I know that one of the issues, one of the concerns or, or that may come up in this is what's been the value of the GGE and the OEWG processes right in the UN. I think one of the values Perhaps the only value is that they are pushing states to be clear on how they interpret international law in the context of cyberspace. And they are pushing states to talk about how do you view cyber sovereignty in cyberspace. And not but all that's states... only that's only interesting if it has operational consequences. And I'm looking for operational consequences here. Yeah, well, it could, right? And so this is one of the arguments that we make in the book, that if states come out with their uh, with their interpretations of international law and cyber context, and then they engage in state practice, right, that is consistent with that over a period of time, then you actually have new rules of customary international law. And new rules of customary international law get to the point that you are, the question you're asking, does that mean that if there's a violation, you know, if we went after the DDoS in Iran, if there's a new rule of customary international law that says that is illegal, then it becomes relevant, right? So there's a long game and a short game going on here when it comes to state behavior in cyberspace. The long game, I think, is playing out through the GGE and the OEWG on getting states to declare what their interpretations of international law are. The short game where the UN and OEWG are failing, in my view, is in trying to, get, in trying to manage norms quote-unquote norms, right, which is different than international law. And that's where the UN, I think, processes are failing us because we're just not getting any legs in that area. Is your argument that norms are emerging through tacit bargaining among the parties who are actually carrying out activity in cyberspace? Yeah, our argument is that cyberspace, because again of its core characteristics, facilitates tacit bargaining much better than the other strategic environments. And that because it facilitates tacit bargaining, that tacit bargaining has to be elevated as a, a particular approach to try to arrive at norms. So let me try a recent story. A, a quote-unquote hacktivist group that practically everybody thinks was a unit 8200 in Israel took over some Iranian steel mills and companies that had been sanctioned and poured steel all over the floor, released a video, and the video had this introduction that said, these steel mills were targeted. They are all subject to sanctions. We used WhatsApp or some other signal system to warn all the employees so that nobody got hurt. And then here's the video of the steel all over the floor. Was that tacit bargaining or was that explicit bargaining in which the Israelis were basically saying, we're doing this. This is the way you do it. You want to do it, try to do it to us. You better observe the limitations that we just put in our YouTube video. Yeah, that's a great case. And so, again, I think we need to step back. And consider that Israel and Iran have been going back and forth in cyberspace now for a while. 
right? Iran targeted the, uh, the water infrastructure in Israel. Israel targeted back and forth. And so I mean, this is a classic, I think, tacit bargaining situation, right? They are engaging the other. The other is observing that behavior and they are engaging the other. They are observing that behavior. And the way that tacit bargaining, because this is a contested area, the way that tacit bargaining functions is that preferably this leads to some sort of understanding on limits and boundaries of this type of behavior. But it takes two to bargain. What's the sign that Iran is getting the message? I Actually, I, th I thought the even better example of kind of tacit bargaining was when a quote-unquote hacktivist group took down all of the gas stations in Tehran and put up the Ayatollah's phone number so you could call to complain. But before they did that, they apparently called emergency services and said, you'd better fill up now because you might have trouble filling up later and there could be problems, uh, which was very sweet. And you can see how you might say that's avoiding an impact that would hurt civilians. But what's the evidence that Iran is saying, oh, yeah, we should do it that way, too? Well, so I think we have to speculate on what is the norm that is trying to be communicated here, right? And I think in all the cases between Iran and Israel and other rivals and the United States, and basically all the cases when everybody in cyberspace right now, is that you see you see very few cases, unless states are already at war, of, of opponents engaging in cyber that causes armed attack equivalent effects. So there's a ceiling, right? There's a tacit ceiling right now on, on what you can't do. And that is you can't do things that cause armed attack equivalent effects. Boy, put, spilling all the steel all over the floor, that sure sounds, you could, you, you could do that with a bomb too, right? Well, I, I mean, well, you're the lawyer, <laughs> right? right? So, so I, I would take the defense, but I wouldn't be sure yeah. I was going to win. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I put a lawyer hat on, which would scare the entire legal profession, I would say that's that would not be considered equivalent okay. um, with a use of force or armed attack. And so, so in the book, we argue that there is a bounded space right now, tacitly bounded space, where the floor is restrained. And the ceiling is engaging in activities that cause armed attack equivalents. And we say that this phenomenon that has emerged from states interacting in cyberspace, we call this thing agreed competition. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that when we say the word agreed, that doesn't mean that we necessarily like what's going on in that bounded space. Right? right. I'm sure that Iran doesn't like that steel is being spilled. I'm sure that Israel doesn't like that their water infrastructure is being threatened. But nonetheless, they're not taking that extra step. Right. And so can tacit bargaining lead to more substantive understandings of the kind of behavior that's in that bounded space is, yeah. is a big question for me. Right. And I think it can. And Dave, the, the new piece that I just had out or just put out actually talks about how if campaigns that countries have been engaged in rather than being episodic, if they were continuous, like taking down TrickBot, for example, if that was then continuous, not a one-off thing before the midterm elections, you are making clear that malicious botnets are unacceptable, right? That's what you're communicating. And everybody sees it, right? So so there's, and there's well, I think everybody does, Dave. I mean, this, <laughs> right, right? they may not get that message. Let me say that. Right? Everybody sees the behavior, sees the outcome, these things are reported but, in the papers. Okay. Here's where I think it gets difficult because everybody does not see it. And just now, Stuart was talking about two different groups that we think are the same group, right? Like we think those are a connected campaign. Hmm. Be and so what I'm going to say is like, for me, the difficulty with the tacit bargaining approach is not necessarily the, the grand theory, but the details of the fact that most countries, if we're talking about states, don't have the ears to hear the message because it requires detailed technical analytics that they don't have access to, that the whole operation is conducted under some fog of war, which is, you know, depending on how much you want to tweet, right? Because the Predatory Spare team has a Telegram channel and a Twitter account. They've just released a bunch of email spools from these organizations. And the messages they're trying to portray are very complicated, 
right? They're like, here are a very complicated boundary of norms and behaviors that we're going to that we're trying to almost enunciate in every possible channel. It's very hard to say if that message is going to make it to decision makers in Iran or outside of Iran in other Gulf states, for example, that are probably also involved in these efforts. So I would say that it's I obviously I'm a norms pessimist in this space, but I don't think it's because I disagree with the core theory. I think it might be because the core theory also might imply that the players in this game are, are there's like millions of them instead of like, you know, where in nuclear deterrence, we had relatively few. So I don't know, like, how much of this. One thing I thought was really exciting about this book is it was a starting point. I didn't feel like it was a, here's the theory, here's all the things it predicts, let's move on with our lives, right? Like, that's not what I felt this book was. This book, to me, felt like we're putting some lines in the sand, but we're not asking you to, like, accept them completely as written and all of our like follow on thoughts forever. So I mean, you you said one of the phrases I really liked was that cybersecurity rests in an alternative to war as opposed to nuclear security which rests in an absence of war and then of course conventional security resting in the presence of war. But I also think there's other spectrums that were not as enumerated in the book, right? So we're seeing the private industry have a much bigger impact. Almost Microsoft is having a far outsized impact in Ukraine compared to what you would consider a conventional effort normally would have. And I think that might start tilting some of these predictions as we start to understand them more. So I guess when we look at predatory spare, I think predatory spare is not being examined as much as it could be. And especially not in this light. I mean, JD worked at a paper, I think with one of your co-authors about four years ago, if I remember correctly. But these are all like, the problem with the tacit bargaining is they're very complicated issues. The states themselves are changing their behaviors. Right? I don't know if, like, I don't know if the state, our, our state, you did a big case study of the United States as it changes its behavior through time. And I think that's happening with all the states. Does that ring true? Yeah. I, well, first of all, I mean, I really appreciate that you understood the book exactly as we wrote it, that here is what we think is a mature compilation of all of our essays of the last several years, right? We've threaded them together to present a cohesive picture, but it's the starting point, right? It's the starting point. So when we say that the characteristics of a cyber strategic environment facilitate tacit bargaining, all the points that you raised that, you know, but tacit bargaining is hard. These are things that we need to think about, right? But we need to recognize that the environment facilitates interaction. And interaction is key to tacit bargaining. So, you know, recognizing that first step is really important. And then you can then try and push that rock up the hill after that, because it is a difficult slog. And same for all the other things, right? Same with norms, right? Recognizing that the environment, if you accept that the environment is as we say it is, that has implications for norms as well, right? How you should pursue norms. I agree with Dave that the value here, and like you're saying it in a nicer way, is that there's so much less BS in this approach than some of the other theories that have been put forward. It doesn't answer a lot of questions. And I want to come back to what it doesn't answer. But first, I wanted to ask, because you cover this a little, where does this leave the Justice Department and the Treasury Department, which were carrying the torch for deterrence through indictment, through sanctions. It doesn't look like that's having an impact, but your theory kind of leaves them playing a distinctly secondary role here. They're part of whole of nation plus and just a little part of it too. You know, I don't know that I can evaluate the weight that each of these different agencies is going to make to the strength of the overall strategy, Stuart. I'm not going to sit here and say that the DOD effort is it should weigh more than other efforts because these other agencies need to think through if initiative persistence is the posture that we have to take right, for security, how does DOJ operationalize initiative persistence? Well, How more does, more Rule Forty One and less indictment, right? Well, well, I mean, Rule Forty One certainly is a novel, right, instantiation. I think of initiative persistence. 
And now indictments, again, still, I think indictments still have some value, right? Because the forensics in the indictments are really strong. And so we could eventually use that to go back to, if we want to use that to support tacit bargaining, right? If we want to then link DOJ to DOD to say, look, we know these particular actors engaged in this particular behavior and we want to engage them and we have the forensics to say that they are the right ones to engage, that's valuable. So that could is support it, is it, I mean, is it, that, that strikes me as tacit surrender. You put up this billboard that says, look at all the stuff that these guys did to us, and all we sent them was this lousy indictment. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying that the indictment has value. I'm saying that the forensics right, in the right. indictment have value so that the United States can then to the international community, say, we are going to engage in a cyber operation for the purpose of communicating to this adversary that this is unacceptable behavior. But the cyber right? operation so, is just publishing all these forensics and kind of naming them and shaming us by saying we, we can't do anything about it other than this meaningless indictment. Yeah. Well, again, I'm, so I'm not, I'm not going to suggest... Well. We know that others who have studied the value of naming and shaming, and we know that others who have studied the value of economic sanctions have concluded that they are not helpful, right, in, in, in constraining or inhibiting adversary behavior short of the use of force. So I'm uh, going to say, let me just stop you there and say, I'm not sure that the persistent engagement has had any impact either, or at least not much. And so my question that I want to sort of take us to uh, round out the discussion is, how do you actually see persistent engagement reducing the level of fait accompli or the impact of fait accompli, like the attack on the election system, which was, there was a lot of BS about it, but the, certainly disclosing the DNC emails had an enormous impact. It probably killed off Hillary's campaign and produced four years of Russia, Russia, Russia attacks on Trump. So it was bad for both candidates in an odd way. That worked well enough that I would ex expect other folks to try that too on campaigns in the future. How is persistent engagement making it less likely that China will intervene against the Republican next time? So I'm going to answer this in two ways. Right. I'm going to answer it in terms of what Cybercom's missions are, and then I'm going to go back to, again, the book calls for a whole of nation plus strategy and not just a DOD strategy. Mm -hmm. So Cybercom, according to General Nakasone's testimony, has been given the security of the elections as an enduring mission. Right. So, so, uh, so you know, what Cybercom does when it gets an enduring mission from the White House is it sets out a campaign plan, it executes the plan. And so, that, so they're going to do that, right? But step back, they are just one part of the government, right? That is pursuing this notion of initiative persistence. If the Department of State is not pursuing it, if the Department of Justice is not pursuing it, if the Department of Homeland Security is not pursuing it, then you have just one piece of the pie contributing to a strategy. I mean, so let's go back mm -hmm. and think about deterrence, right? Just deterrence generally, conventional deterrence. If... The Department of State didn't make clear to our adversaries through diplomacy where the red lines were, right, in, in, in an engagement, in a potential threat situation, then the DOD deterrent strategy would have no legs, right? There has to be an engagement with DOS that supports the same strategic approach for deterrence. The same thing applies to cyber persistence theory and initiative persistence. DOD has created an initiative-persistent strategic approach. DHS has to come up with one. DOS has to come up with one. DOJ has to come up with one. Because unless there's that synergy, unless there's that, that, that focus around this central strategic concept of initiative persistence, which we think is necessary to get security in the cyber strategic environment, you're always going to have a fragmented strategy. So what, right. what, would, what would Cyber Command initiative persistence look like in the election context without getting into details? Because attacking the IRA, that, the Russian uh, fake news outlet, that was like saying, I'm mad as hell and I'm going to find a baby to beat up. That was not a strategic response to election interference. What does Cyber Command do with this enduring mission that will contribute 
significantly to making sure that the North Koreans and the Chinese and the Russians, again, don't decide that messing with our election paid off last time. Let's try it again. Yeah, I always appreciate, Stuart, your questions about what can Cybercom do, because I can just say I can't answer that. Cybercom has to answer that. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, but, but you're the theorist. A, 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 a hypothetical cyber force. <laughs> well, so, and we can look at what they've done. Right. So again, so I, again, I disagree. I think the IRA operation was strategic because you did not see any activity from the IRA after that. Right. You didn't. So yeah. it, it was decisive in terms of getting that disinformation and misinformation. In taking a minor player off the board. Okay. Uh, uh, that's a, a, big, a big player. A big, they were the source of disinformation and misinformation in, in the campaigns. Okay. So yeah, right. we can argue about that. I thought right. the, 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 the theory that Russian disinformation was a big player in the election was wrong. And really, it was the hacking that was the, the, the biggest problem. And who's supposed to address that? DHS? Well, so the election security, I believe, generally falls under DHS, okay, right, and and CISA. So, so I know. I mean, I recall, and these are hazy recollections, but you know, the former director of CISA talked about working a lot with the political committees and yes. working at the state level, and so that's initiative persistence, right? So, so you're starting to see it emerge in in places where they're being proactive, they're anticipating adversary exploitation, and they are either building in resilience or doing some other types of activity to, to be prepared for that. Okay. Dave? Can I paraphrase both of you just now? Because I see a very common thing here, which is that we look at initiative persistence as portrayed in the papers and the books, and then we look at persistent engagement, and we say, it doesn't look like it's working, therefore initiative persistence must not be right. And the problem here is that we are not doing, you know, a persistent engagement across whole of nation or even whole of DOD even in some cases, right? So like in many cases, we have a very fractured strategy, which is why I think the book has this sort of history lesson of our fractured strategy inside sort of the last third of the book. And I think there's a real danger of taking even Cybercom, I still think of as a toddler, right? Like, so like... If you're judging the theory of your toddler's intelligence by what they're eating right now, then it's not a good sign, right? <laughs> but the reality is, right, like, like we're all growing in this space, and uh, it's not just us. It's every other state is trying to understand how to do this analytics. And probably, if I was going to critique the book, I would say, book too short needs another section on other states and how they've evolved in this space, right? So I think it's... I think that's a, I see this go back and forth just in this discussion right here, where we're saying, well, like, I don't know if Cybercom is making an impact here. The reality is, when initiative persistence is done right, you don't see the impact. It just happens. That's the fate accomplished. Like, did Al Qaeda people all get shot in the head? Yeah, they did. Right? Like, and then they went away. Like, then the organization collapsed. That's a thing that happened. And if we do it via massive investments in signals intelligence or human intelligence or, Hacking, those are all strategic options, right? So that's all maneuver. And so I think this is such a complicated topic. I feel like instead of just doing this hour podcast, we should be doing a discussion series, like, you know, 60 hours of trying to explain. <laughs> I know no, I know there's no market for that, but like none, right? But, but the reality is, is like, that's where I see some of this stuff going. And in order to even get to this book, I almost feel like you have to have read a bunch of stuff. And then to look at the policy that you push forward, like where I disagreed with some of the policy was where I thought it was almost unreachable, right? Like getting alignment is really hard. Getting coordination is easier, but still difficult, right? So especially when you're talking about trying to get alignment between Facebook and the U.S. government, like they don't agree with each other on most things in policy. And so when we're like, we need to have some pretty serious alignment to make this work. Those are difficulties. That's pushing the rock up the mountain, in my perspective. But this is, I think this is where it comes down, because we look at Cybercom. We look at DHS. We look at what Justice is doing with the indictments. You say, like, the indictments aren't that useful. But they're now, they, I think the use of them has shifted. That's, that is what's predicted by initiative persistence, is that initially we thought, okay, they're being used for deterrence. And they were. And that was the whole point. That was what people, because the cops in charge of the FBI were like, we're going to deter this activity, right? And you 
actually point out pretty well that we also have not deterred drugs at all. So that was a very fun snarky part. I, that's what's lost in this conversation is there's clever snark in the book that I think is fun. Yeah, I, I so, agree. That you should come for the snark and stay for the strategy. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I look. I, I think Dave has has uh, said it very well. We haven't solved any of these problems, but at least there's a, a whole lot of brush that this book clears out. It's well worth reading. I personally read it, I know you won't endorse this view, as a kind of Roman clay, where those are novels where we all know who the real players are, but they have different names. There's a lot here that tells us about how the thinking at Cyber Command has evolved and where it's gone. And I feel as though I have a much better sense of why Cyber Command has done some of the things that it has done and how it, why it's happy with what it has done. And this sets the stage for talking about a cyber command that will actually disrupt some of the worst kinds of attacks that we still expect foreign nations to pull off. So I, a great book, a lot of work, and I admit I didn't read enough of the footnotes, so I'm going to have to go back and read all the footnotes. The footnotes are funny. Read the footnotes yeah. for the humor. All right. Uh, Michael, you can have the last word or you can say, I'm going to take the nicest things they've said and close on them. Well, I'm going to agree with you that I think Dave has a, this is the first time that I've interacted with Dave live like this. I want to compliment you because you are very good at summarizing and getting to the bottom line of discussions and complicated issues. And I think you just did that again in your last comments. So I appreciate having you on here. And Stuart, again, thanks for inviting us. Thank you for Emily and Richard as well. We all appreciated the opportunity to speak with you two. And while maybe not 60 hours of additional talks, you know, <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be happy to engage in others if there's a desire for it. So consider us on the hook. All right. Thank you. Thank you. The author is Michael Fisher-Keller. The book is Cyber Persistence. And Dave Itell is our interviewer with Stuart Baker. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Anybody with comments can send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for doing the music for this episode. This has been a bonus episode of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. Steptoe.